Well, this evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Ezra. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Ezra chapter 2. And as you make your way to the second chapter of Ezra, I just want to take a moment to remind you that this book actually provides us with a glimpse of the events that occurred after the king of Persia released the Israelites from their Babylonian captivity. And while you would think that every Israelite would have been you know, happy to head back to the land of promise, the fact is that the majority of them chose to remain there in the land of their captivity. And one reason why is because, you know, for some, the carnal comforts of their captivity, well, they were more enjoyable than the rocky road that would lead them back to Zion. That's right, rather than returning to the land of their inheritance, there were many who were happy to remain there in the land of their Babylonian bondage. And it's in a similar yet spiritual way that there are many in the world today who would rather remain in the land of their carnal captivity Uh, than to step out in faith and take that narrow path, which is actually traveled by those who are willing to deal with the difficulties of Christian discipleship. And and, and it's sad that, you know, so so many people are just comfortable uh, in their carnal captivity. And so when, when they're presented with the option of stepping on that narrow path of righteousness, nope, too, too hard, too much work. I'm going to stay here all nice and comfy in my captivity. Now, if this sounds like something that you struggle with, then you know, it's my hope that we would all follow the example of the Israelites who, who actually made the difficult decision to leave the creature comforts of Babylon so that they could go and rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem and for the glory of God. Now, with this as the focus, let's consider Ezra's account of this return to Zion. If you would look with me here at Ezra chapter 2, we'll begin reading there at verse 1. Here Ezra writes, Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Uh, Those who came with Zerubbabel were Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sarahiah, Reelia, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, uh, Rehum, and Baana. Yeah, it's going to be one of these chapters. So, but I want to stop here. I want to consider this group that returned to Zion under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Uh, It'll help you to know that Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David. Not only that, but he was actually the uh, the grandson uh, of Jehoiachin, who was the king of Judah, you know, right before the Babylonian captivity. He was one of the last reigning kings uh, there in Judah. This is his grandson. And, And as we consider the way that King Cyrus called Zerubbabel to lead this group back to Jerusalem, you know, it seems clear to me here that uh, Zerubbabel had retained some level of leadership during his days there in captivity. At the same time, you know, there is some debate about whether he was leading the first group back to Israel or whether this was actually the second group. Now, with this question in mind, I should take a moment to remind you that it was actually back in the final verses of Ezra chapter 1. There we learned uh, about the day when King Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, gave the articles of the house of the Lord to a man named Sheshbazar, who was uh, identified as the prince of Judah. And it's there in the, the last verse of chapter 1 where Ezra informs us that Sheshbar took the articles and, and then led the captives who, who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. He, he, he led that first group of captives back to Israel. 
Now, some scholars insist that Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel must be the same person. And one reason why is because they're both called the Prince of Judah. Not only that, but they're also both credited with laying the foundation of the second temple. And so um, some scholars have rushed to say that this must be the two different names for the same individual. At the same time, though, there are reasons to believe that Sheshbazar arrived in Judah before Zerubbabel. And there are some scholars who then suggest that Sheshbazar is actually an alternative name for Shenazar, who was actually the son of King Jehoiachin and therefore Zerubbabel's uncle. Uh, now, if that's the case, then it's possible that Sheshbazar died shortly after returning to Judah. And if so, then it would only make sense then for King Cyrus to raise up Zerubbabel to take his uncle's place. And uh, what this would also mean then is that Zerubbabel was actually leading the second group back to Judah, not the first. After him, well, Ezra would then lead a third group. And after Ezra, uh, Nehemiah would end up leading a fourth group. As we continue to make our way through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll learn more about the way that the Lord used Ezra, followed by Nehemiah, to bring his people out of Babylon. But for now, I just want to focus on this group that was following Zerubbabel. If you would notice with me again there in the beginning of verse 2, here again we learn that those who came with him were Zerubbabel. Uh, those who came with Zerubbabel were Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sarahiah, Reiliah, uh, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. Now, uh, here in the first half of this verse again, uh, Ezra informs us about this group that uh, they were kind of leaders uh, who were following Zerubbabel. And, and we should notice the first name on the list after Zerubbabel was Yeshua. And, and Yeshua was actually the high priest of Israel at this point in time. And one reason for why this is so interesting is because this is actually the Hebrew name of our Savior, Jesus. As a matter of fact, you might not know this, but Jesus is actually a Latin transliteration of the Greek translation of the Hebrew name, Yeshua. Uh, and so the more direct translation from Hebrew into English would be Joshua, but Jesus is basically the same, just took a, a strange path to get there. But, but again, Jesus is the Latin transliteration of the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua. And without debate, the high priest, this, this high priest named Yeshua uh, was actually a prophetic picture of our high priest, who's also named Yeshua. It's also interesting to note that the name Zerubbabel literally means sown in Babylon or born in Babylon. The name Yeshua actually comes from a root word which can be rendered Jehovah saves, Therefore, the beginning of verse 2 could be rendered in this way. Those who were born in Babylon and came out were saved by Jehovah. I love that. There in those names we find this message. Those who were born in Babylon and came out were saved by Jehovah. Christian, listen. We might have been born in Babylon. And we might have been born into bondage. But we don't have to remain there. We don't have to remain in the, the bondage of Babylon. And, and much like these Israelites that we find here in our text tonight, those, those who will simply trust in the King of Kings and, and who will trust in the priests of, the, of God Most High, those who will trust in Yeshua, are set free from our Babylonian captivity. And now it's just our responsibility to actually walk in that freedom. Rather than remaining all comfy, you know, with our creature comforts in Babylon, we are to follow King Jesus, 
And, and we are to serve the high priest of, of God as we take that, that narrow path uh, of faith, the, the narrow path of Christ's righteousness. Now, with this as the goal, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning in the middle of verse 2, here we learn that the number of the men of the people of Israel, the people of Parash, 2,172, the people of Shephatiah, 372, the people of Ara, 775, the people of Pahath Moab, of the people of Yeshua and Joab, 2,812, the people of Elam, 1,254, the people of Zatu, 945, the people of Zakai, 760, the people of Bani, 642, the people of Bibai, 623, the people of Asgad, 1,200. 22, the people of Adonikam, uh, that is 666, the people of Bigvi, 2056, the people of Adin, 454, uh, the people of Adder and Hezekiah, 98, the people of Bezai, 323, the people of Jorah, 112, the people of Hashem, 223, the people of Gibart, 95, the people of Bethlehem, 123, uh, the men of Netophah, 56, the men of Anathoth, 128, the people of Asmaveth, 42, the people of Kirjath Arim, uh, Kephira and Biroth, 743, uh, the people of Ramah and Geba, 621, the men of Michmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, the people of Nebo, 52, the people of Magbish, 156, the people of the other Elam, 1,254, the people of Haram, 320, the people of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725, the people of Jericho, 345, the people of Senia, 3,630. So once again, we find a list of uh, of, of uh, names uh, that are difficult to pronounce, followed by numbers that are hard to read. So now that we've made it through that portion of this chapter, I just want to point out that we find a, a list of, of, uh, of cities here. We find some cities here, and we find some names uh, of those who returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Uh, and, and while some scholars insist that it was only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin who returned from the Babylonian captivity, uh, we must not fail to notice what Ezra wrote there in the second half of verse 2. You will back up and look at the end of verse 2. There he informs us that the number of the men of the people of who? Of Israel. Not just Judah, but the number of the men of the people of Israel. Here we find these people who are, who are going back uh, to their homeland and to their hometowns. And, and Ezra tells us that it was people from all over Israel, not just the tribe of Judah, but we find all 12 tribes represented in this return. We find further evidence of this at the end of this chapter where we learn that all Israel returned to dwell in their cities. And when we get to Ezra chapter 4, we find the Lord actually promising to provide a sign for not just the people of Judah, not Judah and Benjamin, but for the entire house of Israel. We also find evidence in the New Testament that all 12 tribes were present there in the first century. For example, Anna the prophetess was from the tribe of Asher. John the Baptist was from the tribe of Levi. And Paul 
Well, Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. We also find James addressing uh, the 12 tribes of Israel in his epistle. Uh, And from this, we see that there were 12 tribes in Israel uh, there in the first century that were then dispersed abroad. uh, And James is writing his epistle to all 12 tribes. Now, with all that being the case, listen, there is no biblical reason for us to believe in the so-called lost tribes of Israel. There are a lot of people who make a lot to do about this, and they want to try to convince us that, you know, uh, once uh, the uh, northern tribes were taken into Assyria, you don't hear anything about them after that, and they just are just kind of lost to history, and now, you know, we don't know where the ten tribes of Israel are. Uh, Well, that's really not uh, just biblically sound. There's no biblical reason for, for us to believe that the 10 northern tribes of Israel were somehow lost during the days of the Assyrian captivity. And even here in Ezra, uh, we see that all of Israel was represented uh, in the return to the land of promise. And listen, not only did all 12 tribes return to the land of their inheritance, but we also see the descendants of Levi going back and, and, and picking up where they left off. And in order to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 2. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 36. Here Ezra writes, the priests, the son of Jediah uh, of the house of Yeshua, 973, the sons of Emer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247, the sons of Haram, 1,017, the Levites, the sons of Yeshua, and Cadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adder, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, 139 in all. Now here in these verses we find Ezra, he's actually providing us with a list of the priests and the Levites who returned to the land of promise uh, here on this second trip. And, and while it's true that the priests and the Levites were both from the tribe of Levi, uh, the priests of Israel came from the lineage of Levi's great-grandson, Aaron, or you know what some might call a Aaron, if if you like. But with that being the case, you might be wondering, well, you know, if if the priests of Israel and, and specifically the high priest of Israel ha- has to come from the tribe of Levi through the lineage of Aaron, well, then you might be wondering how can Jesus occupy the position of high priest since his humanity stems from the tribe of Joshua and not from Levi. Well, with this question in mind, I want to consider the way that Paul tackles this tough question in, in his letter uh, to the Hebrew believers of the first century. If you would, hold your place here in the book of Ezra, and let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. It's actually in the seventh chapter of Hebrews where we find Paul. He's reminding his readers about a very interesting character named Melchizedek. And, and Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which means king of peace. And not only that, but he was the priest of the Most High God. And, and this alone is very unusual because you would have kings and you would have priests. But Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Not only that, but Paul also assured his audience that, that this uh, king and this priest named Melchizedek was without genealogy. Very unusual. Kings are, you know, usually base their, their position on a genealogy. Same with the priests. You know, you, you would determine, you know, whether you were a priest or not based on your genealogy, but Melchizedek has no genealogy. He has, according to Paul, no father or mother and had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Hmm, who is this sounding like? Instead, he was made like the Son of God, and therefore he remains a priest 
continually. And it's for this reason that Father Abraham gave a tithe or a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek as an act of worship. Now, with all this in mind, let's you know, pick up the point that Paul is making here in Hebrews chapter 7. We're kind of jumping in halfway. There at verse 9, he declares, even Levi, remember, the priest came from Levi in, in Israel. So even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Now, that's a lot to take in, and it's certainly a lot to consider. But to sum it all up, we can see that the Lord Jesus He's not a high priest according to the Levitical law. And he's not a priest according to the Old Covenant. No, instead, Jesus is our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which is greater than the Aaronic priesthood because even Aaron in Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. In this way, we see then that the Lord Jesus uh, was able to establish a better covenant because he comes from a better uh, 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 you know, priesthood. And, and in this, we can be saved from the condemnation of the law by faith in our Savior, Yeshua, the high priest of God and the King of peace. And listen, this new covenant was not only prepared for the Jews, but it was also prepared for the Gentiles. In order to prove my point, let's turn back to Ezra chapter 2. Let's pick up our study beginning at verse thir- uh, 43. There, verse 43, Ezra writes, Then uh, the Nethanin, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Taboth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riahai, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasia, uh, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephusim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, uh, the sons of Harher, 
the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mehada, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barcos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tama, the sons of Nezia, and the sons of Hatipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, uh, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Porchoreth, of Zebaim, and uh, not to be confused with the other Porchoreth, but uh, also the sons of Ammi. All the Nethanin and the children of Solomon's servants were 392. Now, here's a whole another list of uh, men that I'm going to have to apologize when I get to heaven for mispronouncing their names. But as we consider this list of names here, you know, it's important to note that the Nethanim, they, they were actually Gentile servants who were brought in to help the Levites to prepare everything for the daily temple services, and there was a lot to do. And so these Gentile servants were, were brought in and, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, basically consecrated and, and, and allowed to help the Levites uh, with all of that work. And then there's the children of Solomon's servants. Uh, they were the Gentiles who were serving uh, the kings of Judah there uh, in, in, the, uh, in the residence of the king. And with that being the case, you know, we can see how these Gentile servants had remained loyal uh, to their spiritual and civil leaders of Israel during the days of their captivity. They, they remained loyal. They, they, they remained part of the family, so to speak. And not only that, but we also find a group of the Nethanim, uh, as well as the children of Solomon's servants, following the king and the high priest of Israel back to the land of promise. Some remained in Babylon, but there were many who followed them back. And, and while these Gentile servants could have simply asked King Cyrus to set them free as well, it's my guess that while they had become these true believers who were you know, actually probably excited to return so that they could go back and continue serving the Lord there at the temple. Now, in light of their example, I, just, I encourage every Gentile here tonight who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to realize that those who truly follow the King of heaven and earth will want to be the servants of our King. We will want to be the servants of our Savior. I like the way that Jesus put it in Mark chapter 10. It's here where he declares, whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, in light of this lesson, I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus came and, and presented the perfect example for us, and, and he came and served. He came and, and washed the feet. You know, he came and ministered to, to the people and, and served them. And he certainly served us by dying on the cross for our sins. The Lord Jesus came and presented himself as the servant of all, uh, and then turns around and, and lets us know that if we want to be anything in the kingdom, if we, if we want to be great in the kingdom, then be a servant. Follow the example of our servant Savior, Jesus Christ. With that, we ought to become the servants of our Savior, much like those Gentiles who went back to Jerusalem because they wanted to go and serve the Lord there at the temple. With this as the goal, we should consider the importance of being led by the Holy Spirit as we set out to serve our Savior. And with that, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 2. I'm going to focus your attention beginning at verse 59. Here Ezra writes, And these were the ones who came up from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel, the sons of Delaiah, 
the sons of Tobiah, uh, and the sons of Nakoda, 652, and of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habaiah, the sons of Koz, and the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. Now here in these verses we find Ezra, he's describing a a bit of an issue that arose as uh, as some men came along and said, hey, uh, we want to go back uh, with you guys and we want to serve as priests. And, And this group of men who claimed to be the sons of Aaron, well, they failed to prove their priestly genealogy. And in order to be a, a, a priest of Israel, you had to you had to have come from the the lineage of Levi through the bloodline of Aaron. That being the case, you know, without evidence of their lineage, they were excluded from serving as priests until they uh, the the high priest could consult with the Lord through the Urim and the Thummim. And now, just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to remember that the Urim and the Thummim, these were actually gemstones which were carried by the high priest of Israel, possibly in a pouch or maybe attached to his ephod. Uh, and these gemstones would be used by the high priest to determine God's will in specific situations. And so uh, imagine, you know, that, that one is a black stone and the other is a white stone, maybe, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the high priest would pray and then reach in a pouch. And, you know, if, if, you know, black was yes and white was no or vice versa, we don't know. But, uh, but whatever it is that the Lord would use the Urim and the Thummim to approve or, or disprove uh, the prayer request. And, and, and so in this situation, the high priest Yeshua needed to use the Urim and the Thummim in order to discover if these men were truly from the lineage of Aaron or not. And, and so he would spend some time consulting with the Lord, praying for an answer, and then, uh, and then using the Urim and the Thummim to, uh, to receive that answer. Now, as we consider the way in which the high priest of Israel would use these gemstones to like, discover the will of God... We can rejoice in knowing that you know, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, God can use these sorts of things, and yet our high priest, the true Yeshua, has actually provided us with so, uh, with so much a, a better plan. You know, you know, the Lord has provided us with the indwelling Spirit of God. We don't need some external urim and thummim to find out God's will. We've been given the indwelling Spirit of God, who was sent to guide us into all truth, so that we can serve the Lord. You know, according to his perfect will. And this is precisely the point that the Lord Jesus was making in John chapter 16, where he declares, I still have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them right now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Now from this, we can see that the Holy Spirit was actually sent in order to guide believers into God's will. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that we no longer need the Urim and the Thummim. And, and, and maybe that's a bummer for you. Maybe you'd prefer you know, having you know, a couple of stones in a pouch that you just pull one out and, and get your answer from. But listen, God wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want us looking at gemstones. You know, he, he, he wants us seeking his face. And hearing from him, and, and, and the reason why, you know, is because God, you know, desires to have this relationship with us and, and wants us to also desire that relationship with him. 
With that, we can rejoice in knowing that the born-again believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and now we can receive from, from inside, from, from, the, from the guidance of God, uh, the leading uh, that comes from the divine wisdom of, of God's Holy Spirit. And not only that, but listen, the Holy Spirit is also here to help us by providing us with the spiritual power that we need so that we can leave behind the bondage of Babylon. And I get it, you know, it, it's, it's a, a frightful, fearful thing to walk away from a creature comfort and walk towards the unknown. That can be extremely difficult. And I can only imagine that uh, you know the uh, that the people there heading back to the land of Israel, they were stressed because you know the place had been you know raised to the ground. The place had been destroyed, and while there was a remnant there that that had remained, you know they didn't know what they were going back to. And yet those Israelites courageously followed their king back to the land of promise. And, and in light of their example, I encourage you, let's, let's walk in the liberty of the Lord as we follow our King Jesus according to the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit. And with this as the goal, let's consider the final example that's demonstrated by, by those who returned to Jerusalem. If you would, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 2. We'll begin reading there at verse 64. Here we learn that the whole assembly together was 42,300. Sixty, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. Now here in the final section of this chapter, you know, we find Ezra summing up the total number of people and animals that followed Zerubbabel and, and Yeshua back to the land of Israel. And as we consider the total number of just horses and mules and camels and donkeys, you know, there should be no doubt that many of them were doing fairly well throughout their time there in the land of Babylon. So yes, they had been taken to captivity. Uh, yes, they had been, you know, turned into servants. But this didn't mean that they were just all, you know, broke, busted, and disgusted, you know, there in, in Babylon. You know, they, they actually did have some creature comforts living in the land of captivity. Uh, the famous Jewish historian Josephus even commented on this by informing us, and I quote, Many remained in Babylon being unwilling to leave their possessions. Yeah, they, they had possessions there in the land of Babylon, and we see them returning with all these, you know, uh, animals. Which, which you know, speaks of uh, some level of wealth. And so many remained in the land of Babylon. They, they remained in the land of their bondage because they had come to love the creature comforts that they began to enjoy during their time in captivity. And it's in similar fashion that there are so many in the world today who really don't want to be set free from the bondage of their fallen flesh. They, they want what's comfortable. They, they want that, something that's not challenging. They, they want to just kind of coast through life. 
They don't want it to be disrupted by discipleship programs and accountability. Knowing that we're all prone to remain behind in the land of bondage, I encourage you to consider the example of those who returned to the land of promise. After arriving, you know, we learned that all the people started to, to resettle the land of their inheritance and, and they went and dwelt in the cities that the Lord had given to each of the tribes. All of Israel started resettling the, the regions uh, where, you know, where their inheritance was. And not only that, but we also find the leaders of every tribe bringing their offerings to the house of the Lord, which was in Jerusalem. And, and after resettling the cities that their forefathers had received, you know, those who had followed Zerubbabel and Yeshua, they began to use the wealth that they had acquired there in Babylon, and they began to use it for the purpose of rebuilding the temple of God. As a matter of fact, if you notice again in verses 68 and 69, there we learn that the heads of the fathers' houses made voluntary offerings for the sake of rebuilding God's temple. And according to Ezra, each leader gave as much as he could. They, they voluntarily gave as much as they could, which ended up totaling here 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 robes for the priests. Now, in light of this example, I should take this opportunity to point out that, you know, one of the best ways for us to escape the bondage of Babylon is to actually spend our time and our talents and our treasure on those things that build up the kingdom of God. If you fill your time serving the Lord, then you don't really have a whole lot of time to go and sin now, do you? If you use your talents to serve your Savior, then you can't really dedicate those talents to the devil now, can you? If you use your treasure to build up the kingdom of God, then you don't really have a whole lot of money left over for, for some of the things that might drag you back into bondage. We ought to be taking every opportunity to, to use what God has gifted to us our time and our talent and our treasure, we ought to take that and use it for his glory. This includes the time we spend serving our Savior, and this also includes the talents that we have to, to, to serve him with. This includes the way we invest our money, even here in our fellowship of faith, to, to be able to fund the, the sort of outreaches and programs that we want to accomplish. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying because I believe that you know, uh, Christians are no longer under the Old Testament tithe. You're never going to catch me preaching the tithe. You're never going to you know, catch me you know, pounding the pulpit and trying to convince you to, to give grudgingly. But at the same time, I also believe that the Israelites who freely offered what they could for the construction of that second temple, they provide us with a pretty good example of what it means to use our treasure for the glory of God. I like the way that Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's there where he declares, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, 
that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now, Christian, listen, the, the Lord is calling, uh, calling us here to, to financially support the work of the ministry. And, and there are many Christians who can't afford to do that because they've already blown all their money on secular things. You know, by the time you pay the cable bill and the entertainment bill, and you, by the time you, you know, pay for gas, God help us, there's nothing left. And we've forgotten what it means to give God the first fruits of what he's entrusted to us. That, that we're, we're to be stewards of what he's given to us. The Lord is calling every Christian to financially support the work of the ministry. And while some pastors want to manipulate their members by trying to convince them to give out of some obligation of, of Old Testament tithes, it's just completely false. I would rather send you out of here tonight letting you know that there is no obligation for you to give anything here at this church. That's just between you and God. I know what God has put on my heart and my wife's heart to give here, and that's what we give. We prayed, we sought the Lord, the Lord led us, and that's, that's what we give according to you know, what he's put on our heart to give, and that's what I encourage you to do. We aren't called to give out of a grudging obligation because you know we're required by law to give a certain amount. That's Old Testament stuff. That's law. We're not under the Aaronic priesthood. We are not under the Levitical law. We are under the high priest who comes to us from the order of Melchizedek. At the same time, our high priest has encouraged every Christian to give with generosity, bountifully, and cheerfully, which could also be rendered hilariously. You ought to be thinking, this is ridiculous how much I'm giving. That's what it says. And as we do this, listen, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord is going to supply for all of our needs. You think you're going to outgive God? It's doubtful. The Lord has promised to supply for all of our needs, which, listen, is not me saying you should give so you can get. Because that's completely the wrong heart as well. Those who come along and preach the hundredfold increase and, you know, you, you plant that seed of faith here and God will, you know, restore it hundredfold. And that's garbage theology. That's not what this means. But I guarantee that you cannot outgive God. God has promised that those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully. Now, I believe that first and foremost, what that means is that we're going to be able to accomplish that much more ministry here, uh, you know, the more we get together and use our money for that purpose. And we're going to see a, a bountiful harvest of souls. I also believe, you know, that the Lord is going to meet all of our needs. That includes all sufficiency in all things. That's what he says. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Do you have all sufficiency in all things that provides you an abundance for every good work? Because if you can't say yes to that tonight, if you don't have all sufficiency in all things, if, if God's not meeting your every need, then the question is why? 
Why not? Because it's a promise. Is it possibly because those who sow sparingly also reap sparingly? Listen, I have no doubt that God is going to provide for this church. And that, that's why you'll never see me pounding the pulpit. And, and, you know, there's going to be times where I'm going to say, hey, bills are due. Let's, let's uh, see what we can do here. Let's pray. But at the end of the day, your giving is between you and God. I'm just here to tell you that God said, give generously, give bountifully, and give cheerfully. And whatever he puts on your heart to give, that's what you should give as we use our money together to accomplish the ministry that uh, he's leading us to accomplish. With that, I would just point out that if you're spending your money on the things of the Lord, you don't have time to, you don't have extra resources to spend on things that take you back into bondage. And that's a good thing. Christian, listen, if you truly want to leave behind the bondage of Babylon, then let's make sure first and foremost that we are following the King of Kings. And let's become servants of our high priest, Jesus Christ. With that, let's walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will help us to use our time and our talent and our treasure all for the glory of God. Let's pray.